Section 19 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. New York, Thursday, February 22, 1906. Susie's remarks about her grandfather Langdon. Mr. Clemens tells about Mr. Atwater, Mr. David Gray, and about meeting David Gray, Jr. at a dinner recently. I have wandered far from Susie's chat about her grandfather, but that is no matter. In this autobiography it is my purpose to wander whenever I please, and come back when I get ready. I have now come back, and we will set down what Susie has to say about her grandfather. From Susie's Biography I mentioned that Mama and Papa couldn't stay in their house in Buffalo because it reminded them so much of Grandpapa. Mama received a letter from Aunt Susie in which Aunt Susie says a good deal about Grandpapa, and the letter showed so clearly how much everyone that knew Grandpapa loved and respected him that Mama let me take it to copy what is in it about Grandpapa, and Mama thought it would fit in nicely here. Quarry Farm, April 16th, 1885. Livy, dear, are you not reminded by today's report of General Grant of Father? You remember how as Judge Smith and others whom Father had chosen as executors were going out of the room, he said, Gentlemen, I shall live to bury you all, smiled and was cheerful. At that time he had far less strength than General Grant seems to have, but that same wonderful courage to battle with the foe. All along there has been much to remind me of Father of his quiet patience, in General Grant. There certainly is a marked likeness in the souls of the two men. Watching, day by day, the reports from the nation's sick-room brings to mind so vividly the days of that summer of 1870, and yet they seem so far away. I seemed as a child compared with now, both in years and experience. The best and the hardest of life have been since then to me, and I know this is so in your life. All before seems dreamy. I suppose this was because our lives had to be all readjusted to go on without that great power in them. Father was quietly such a power in so many lives besides ours, Livy dear, not in kind or degree the same to any one, but, oh, a power. The evening of the last company I was so struck with the fact that Mr. Atwater stood quietly before Father's portrait a long time, and, turning to me, said, We shall never see his like again, with a tremble and a choking in his voice. This, after fifteen years, and from a business friend. And some stranger, a, a week ago, spoke of his habit of giving, as so remarkable, he having heard of father's generosity. 
I remember Mr. Atwater very well. There was nothing citified about him or his ways. He was in middle age, and had lived in the country all his life. He had the farmer look, the farmer gait. He wore the farmer's clothes, and also the farmer goatee, a decoration which had been universal when I was a boy but was now become extinct in some of the western towns and in all of the eastern towns and cities. He was transparently a good and sincere and honest man. He was a humble helper of Mr. Langdon, and had been in his employ many years. His role was general utility. If Mr. Langdon's sawmills needed unscientific but plain common-sense inspection, Atwater was sent on that service. If Mr. Langdon's timber rafts got into trouble on account of a falling river or a rising one, Atwater was sent to look after the matter. Atwater went on modest errands to Mr. Langdon's coal mines, also to examine and report upon Mr. Langdon's interests in the budding coal-oil fields of Pennsylvania. Mr. Atwater was always busy, always moving, always useful in humble ways, always religious, and always ungrammatical, except when he had just finished talking and had used up what he had in stock of that kind of grammar. He was effective, that is, he was effective if there was plenty of time, but he was constitutionally slow, and as he had to discuss all his matters with whomsoever came along, it sometimes happened that the occasion for his services had gone by before he got them in. Mr. Langdon never would discharge Atwater, though young Charlie Langdon suggested that course now and then. Young Charlie could not abide Atwater because of his provoking dilatoriness and of his comfortable contentment in it. But I loved Atwater. Atwater was a treasure to me. When he would arrive from one of his inspection journeys and sit at the table at noon and tell the family all about the campaign in delicious detail, leaving out not a single inane, inconsequential, and colorless incident of it, I heard it gratefully. I enjoyed Mr. Langdon's placid patience with it, the family's despondency and despair, and more than all these pleasures together, the vindictiveness in young Charlie's eyes, and the volcanic disturbances going on inside of him which I could not see, but which I knew were there. I am dwelling upon Atwater just for love. I have nothing important to say about Atwater. In fact, only one thing to say about him at all and even that one thing I could leave unmentioned if I wanted to, but I don't want to. It has been a pleasant memory to me for a whole generation. 
it lets in a fleeting ray of light upon Livy's gentle and calm and equitable spirit. Although she could feel strongly and utter her feelings strongly, none but a person familiar with her and with all her moods would ever be able to tell by her language that that language was violent. Young Charlie had many and many a time tried to lodge a seed of unkindness against Atwater in Livy's heart, but she was as steadfast in her fidelity as was her father, and Charlie's efforts always failed. Many and many a time he brought to her a charge against Atwater which he believed would bring the longed-for bitter word, and at last he scored a success, for all things come to him who waits. I was away at the time, but Charlie could not wait for me to get back. He was too glad, too eager. He sat down at once and wrote to me while his triumph was fresh and his happiness hot and contenting. He told me how he had laid the whole exasperating matter before Livy, and then had asked her, Now what do you say? And she said, Damned Atwater. Charlie knew that there was no need to explain this to me. He knew I would perfectly understand. He knew that I would know that he was not quoting but was translating. He knew that I would know that his translation was exact, was perfect, that it conveyed the precise length, breadth, weight, meaning, and force of the words which Livy had really used. He knew that I would know that the phrase which she really uttered was, I disapprove of Atwater. He was quite right. In her mouth that word, disapprove, was as blighting and withering and devastating as another person's dam. One or two days ago I was talking about our sorrowful and pathetic brief sojourn in Buffalo, where we became hermits and could have no human comradeship except that of young David Gray and his young wife and their baby boy, it seems an age ago. Last night I was at a large dinner party at Norman Hapgood's palace uptown, and a very long and very slender gentleman was introduced to me, a gentleman with a fine, alert, and intellectual face, with a becoming gold pince-nez on his nose, and clothed in an evening costume which was perfect from the broad spread of immaculate bosom to the rosetted slippers on his feet. His gait, his bows, and his intonations were those of an English gentleman, and I took him for an earl. I said I had not understood his name, and asked him what it was. He said David Gray. The effect was startling. His very father stood before me, as I had known him in Buffalo thirty-six years ago. 
This apparition called up pleasant times in the beer mills of Buffalo with David Gray and John Hay when this David Gray was in his cradle, a beloved and troublesome possession, and this contact kept me in Buffalo during the next hour and made it difficult for me to keep up my end of the conversation at my extremity of the dinner-table. The text of my reveries was, What was he born for? What was his father born for? What was I born for? What is anybody born for? His father was a poet, but was doomed to grind out his living in a most uncongenial occupation, the editing of a daily political newspaper. He was a singing bird in a menagerie of monkeys, macaws, and hyenas. His life was wasted. He had come from Scotland when he was five years old. He had come saturated to the bones with Presbyterianism of the bluest, the most uncompromising, and most unlovely shade. At thirty-three, when I was comrading with him, his Presbyterianism was all gone, and he had become a frank rationalist and pronounced unbeliever. After a few years news came to me in Hartford that he had had a sunstroke. By and by the news came that his brain was affected as a result. After another considerable interval I heard through Ned House, who had been visiting him, that he was no longer able to competently write either politics or poetry, and was living quite privately, and teaching a daily Bible class of young people, and was interested in nothing else. His unbelief had passed away. His early Presbyterianism had taken its place. This was true. Some time after this I telegraphed and asked him to meet me at the railway station. He came, and I had a few minutes' talk with him, this for the last time. The same sweet spirit of the earlier days looked out of his deep eyes. He was the same David I had known before, great and fine and blemishless in character, a creature to adore. Not long afterward he was crushed and burned up in a railway disaster at night, and I probably thought then, as I was thinking now, through the gay laughter-and-chatter fog of that dinner-table, what was he born for? What was the use of it? These tiresome and monotonous repetitions of the human life, where is their value? Susie asked that question when she was a little child. There was nobody then who could answer it. There is nobody yet. When Mr. Langdon died on the 6th of August, 1870, I found myself suddenly introduced into what was to me a quite new role, that of businessman, temporarily.